We have finished Job 24 last week, so we're on Job 25 this week. So then Bildad, the Shuhite, answered and said, Dominion and fear are with God. He makes peace in his high heavens. Is there any number to his armies? Upon whom does his light not arise? How then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? Behold, even the moon is not bright, and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man who is a maggot, and the son of man who is a worm? That's the entirety of Bildad's statement there. And this is a very common attitude among believers. Jews and Christians, by the way. And it's not confined to Christians and it's not confined to Calvinists. I mean, it's a very common idea. I guess the way I would describe it is everybody sins. We all do. One of the common beliefs is sin is sin and there's no degree of sin. If you're a sin, you're a sinner and that's just all that is. The scripture doesn't support that. The scriptures support different severity of sin, both the New and the Old Testament. So, for example, Yeshua says when he comes back, if he finds the servants not doing what they're supposed to do, if they knew what they were supposed to do, they get a severe beating. But if they didn't understand what they were supposed to do and failed, they get a light beating. So the idea that there are degrees of guilt is all over Scripture. So as you go through your life, all of us periodically stumble, mess up, do wrong stuff, but we're not what I would call wicked or in rebellion against God. We're just normal, frail human beings that from time to time mess up. So in that sense, what Bildad is saying is correct. However, that's not what he means. Remember, Job is insisting in all of this that he is righteous before God, that he has not done anything worthy of the calamities that have befallen him. So what Bildad is saying is, there's nobody that can say that. And Job will say in a minute, yeah, I know that. But what I'm saying is, even though I am a normal, sinful human being, I have not done anything that is deserving of the punishment that I'm getting. And so Bildad is responding to Job's continual insistence that his situation is not the result of his own sin. And Bildad, and in fact, all three of his friends, just cannot see that. Because everybody is assuming that God is just, which he is. And so if this is happening to you, it must be because you deserve it. And, of course, we who have read the first chapter of Job, which Job is not privy to, know that what's really going on is... There's a contest, if you will, in heaven between God and Satan, where God says, my man Job is righteous. Satan says, well, he's only behaving that way because you protect him. Let me at him, and I will make him curse you to your face. And God says, you can't do it. Take your best shot. So God himself declares Job is righteous. Job declares that he is righteous, not in the sense of I've never made a mistake, but I'm not a wicked man. So now, then chapter 26. 
Then Job answered and said, and by the way, this is sarcasm. Then Job answered and said, how you have helped him who has no power. How you have saved the arm that has no strength. How you have counseled him who has no wisdom and plentifully declared sound knowledge. With whose help have you uttered words and whose breath has come out of you? So the first here is sarcastic. How you have helped someone who is weak, which is to say you haven't. And how have you saved him whose arm has no strength? My arm doesn't have any strength. I am beaten down. So you haven't saved me. You've given counsel to one who has no wisdom. He's argued all the way through the book that he is just as wise as they are. and He knows just as much about God as they do. So the idea here is how you have counseled him who has no wisdom. As in, boy, really nice of you to tell me something I didn't know. Now verse 4. With whose help have you uttered words and whose breath has come out of you? That's a rhetorical question, and the answer to that is God. God has given you the breath, and God has given you the life, and God has, if you will, helped you to get to this point. The dead tremble under the waters and their inhabitants. Sheol is naked before God, and Abaddon has no covering. We'll come back to that in a minute. He stretches out the earth over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. So this is all by way of describing who God is. And so it starts off with, whose breath are you using here? And then he's going on and he's describing the power and majesty of God, which is to say, I understand fully who God is, and, or at least as fully as a human can understand who God is, and I fully understand my relation to him. Remember what the accusation was is God is so great that there is no way that you can presume to be righteous in his presence. That was the argument. So what Job is now doing is saying, poetically, I fully understand who this God you're talking about is. And I fully understand his majesty, at least as well as any human being could. So now, pick it up a second. He stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the waters in his thick clouds, and the cloud is not split open under them. He covers the face of the full moon and spreads over it his cloud. He has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at his rebuke. By his power he stilled the sea. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. By his wind, the heavens are made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him, but the thunder of his power who can understand. So this is a beautiful poetic description of the power and majesty of God. And this is all by way of answering his friends who are criticizing him and they're saying, hey bucko, who are you to declare yourself righteous in the presence of such a God? And so Job is saying, I understand such a God at least as well as you do. And oh, by the way, in his sight, I am righteous. I am not a wicked man. Now, let's back up and pick up on two things. 
One is in verse 12, by his understanding he shattered Rahab. I have no idea what that means. This is not Rahab the harlot that we get in the book of Judges. Rahab is mentioned earlier back in chapter 9.13. And it's just sort of a passing reference. I guess it's assumed by the writer that everybody will know what that means. I don't. I haven't done an exhaustive search, but I haven't found anything in my casual reading of commentaries that tells me. Now, the place I want to fetch up for just a minute is back in verse 6. And Sheol is naked before God, and Abaddon has no covering. You all, of course, recognize Abaddon, right? If you go to Revelation 9, what you have is the fifth trumpet, and you have these demon locusts that come out from the center of the earth. I'll pick it up in verse 7, Revelation 9:7. In appearance, the locusts are like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots and horses running into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have a king over them, and the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. So Abaddon we find in Revelation is the angel in charge of the bottomless pit. So now back here in Job, it says Sheol is naked before God and Abaddon has no covering. Remember, this is a description of the power and majesty of God. This whole chapter 26, where he goes through and he explains his understanding of who God is in poetic language. And what he's saying is, This God is also God over the angel of the pit. There is no duality. One of the great religions, if you will, believes in dualism, which is you have a good God and a bad God, and that they are in conflict with each other. You know, yin and yang and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Zoroastrianism also believes in a good God and a bad God who are in conflict. It's called dualism. What this is saying is dualism has no validity. There is only one God. Satan was created by God. Satan has a purpose. And this angel of the pit was created by God. He has a purpose. He is not an independent adversarial power source to God. He is no covering before God. And by the way, one of the objections that Judaism has to Christianity is they think that our religion smacks of dualism. And in fact, I am not an expert on Mormon theology, but I seem to remember something about in Mormon theology, Satan and Yeshua are brothers. I'm not an expert on their theology. This is just something I've heard. So if I've heard it wrong and I'm explaining it wrong, it's out of ignorance. But The idea of dualism, where you have two equally powerful beings who are in contention, is no basis in Judaism. And as I said, it's one of the objections that a lot of Jews have to Christianity, is to them it looks like we believe in dualism. So now we're down to chapter 27. So after this 
very beautiful poetic explanation of who God is in Job's understanding. So now we're down to chapter 27. And Job again took up his discourse and said, we'll stop. Anybody recognize that phrase? Where we've heard that before. Some of you may have Job took up his oracle and said, parable and said, where have we heard that before? Balaam. Remember, every time Balaam stands up on the mountain and goes to another of the altars to try and curse Israel, it starts off, and Balaam took up his discourse and said. And the underlying word there in Hebrew is mashal. Here it's a, an oracle or a uh, parable in some translations. But the idea here is that he is engaging in Eastern wisdom. Remember, I've talked to you about Mashalim in the past. It's, a, it's also a literary form all over the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and so forth. So, 27 again. And Job took up his discourse and said, As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me, and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood, and my tongue will not utter deceit. Far be it from me to say that you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness, and I will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. So he's saying a couple of things. One is he is absolutely convinced that what's happening to him is unjust. One of the things that happens in socialist regimes, and it's happening in the United States right now, is through power, what they try and get you to do is say things that are not true. So in communism, for example, one of the things they do with prisoners of war is they try and get them to sign a confession to war crimes. So the idea is I am signing this confession. I am saying that I am guilty of something. And what that is, is a step toward the breakdown of the morale of the prisoner. What's happening in the United States is there are things that you can't say. You cannot speak of these things, otherwise you'll lose your job and all sorts of bad things will happen to you. So what they're trying to do is get you to speak things that you know are not true, because in that what happens is it breaks down your moral fiber and it breaks down your will to resist what they're trying to do. So what Job is saying is, I will not say anything about myself or about God that is untrue. I am going to steadfastly continue to say what I believe is true, even in the face of all of your criticism and all of your hectoring. I am not going to change what's true. And then verse 6 again, I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. So what he's saying is, I have looked back over on my life, and my heart is at peace with everything that I have done in my life. My heart doesn't reproach me for anything I have done in all of my days. Verse 7, Let my enemy be as the wicked, And let him who rises up against me be as the unrighteous. For what is the hope of the godless when God cuts him off, when God takes away his life? Will God hear his cry when distress comes upon him? 
Will he take delight in the Almighty? Will he call upon God at all times? I will teach you concerning the hand of God. What is with the Almighty I shall not conceal. Behold, all of you have seen it yourselves. Why then have you become altogether vain? So what he's saying is, the wicked one has no hope, and he doesn't cry out to God because God isn't going to listen to him. Job is saying, I'm not wicked. I am willing to cry out to God. I am willing to plead my case before God because I know if God hears my case, I will be vindicated. Remember, he said that in previous chapters. So what he's doing is he's contrasting himself to what a wicked person would do in the same situation. If I were wicked, I would not be standing here calling out to God because I would know God wouldn't hear me. And in fact, the only reason I would be wicked is if I thought God wouldn't hear me. Remember, it says that the wicked goes about his life thinking God's not watching. God's not paying attention to what I'm going to do. So I might just as well do whatever I want to do because God doesn't care and God isn't paying attention. So when calamity comes upon a wicked man, he doesn't call out to God because he got there thinking that God isn't paying attention. So why would I call out to God when I got a problem? That Job is saying, I am calling out to God. Verse 13, this is the portion of a wicked man with God and the heritage that oppressors receive from the Almighty. There's a colon here. So he's saying this is what a, a wicked man or an oppressor can expect from God. If his children are multiplied, it is for the sword, and his descendants have not enough bread. So multiplying your children for the sword means that you may have a lot of children, but they're all going to be killed in battle or by invaders. Those who survive him, the pestilence buries, and his widows do not weep. So when the wicked man dies, his widows don't even miss him, probably because they are drinking from the same well he's drinking from. 16. Though he heap up silver like dust and pile up clothing like clay, he may pile it up, but the righteous will wear it, and the innocent will divide the silver. Notice this is a marshal. So you have silver, silver, clothes, clothes. See the parallelism? Very common Hebrew poetic structure. 18. He builds his house like a moth, like a booth that a watchman makes. And again, the idea here is he may build his house and he may think it's substantial, but it is no more substantial than a moth's cocoon or a shack that somebody throws up to shelter a watchman. In other words, it's not substantial construction that's going to last. It's going to be blown away. 19. He goes to bed rich, but will do so no more. He opens his eyes and his wealth is gone. Terrors overtake him like a flood. In a night, a whirlwind carries him off. Down to verse 21. The east wind lifts him up and he is gone. It sweeps him out of his place. It hurls him without pity. He flees from its power in headlong flight. It claps its hand at him and hisses at him from its place. So we're answering Bildad. And remember, Bildad says, you who exalt yourself as righteous are nothing before God. 
And so what he's doing is he's saying, I know who God is. That was the previous chapter. This chapter was contrasting himself and his behavior before God with what they know of the wicked before God. So he is saying back to his accusers, I know what happens to the wicked just as well as you do. I know who God is just as well as you do. I'm not wicked, and I am not exalting myself before God. I am not making myself up to be something special in the presence of God. I understand just as well as you do what my relationship is to him, or better yet, what his relationship is to me. So now we're down to chapter 28. Where we're going in this chapter is we are going to a discourse on wisdom. So what he's saying is men seek out iron, copper, precious material, all that kind of stuff, and they diligently seek it. Yet, in all of those places where they seek it, they do not find wisdom. So the question becomes, where does one go to find wisdom? So all of these things that people are diligently searching for, like prospectors searching for jewels and so forth, all of those are things that men diligently seek. And also you have to seek after wisdom, but it is not to be found in the same place where worldly wealth is. That's sort of an outline of the argument. So as we read through it, then you can see what's going on. So, surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth, and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the farthest limit the ore in gloom and deep darkness, which is to say, putting an end to darkness means digging tunnels down into the earth and taking lights down there so you can see what's going on. Verse 4. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. The idea here is you have to travel to exotic places in order to find exotic riches. Verse 5. As for the earth, out of it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires and its dust of gold. The surface of the earth we get bread from, but in order to get sapphires and gold and stuff like that, you got to go below the surface. 7. That path no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden it. The lion has not passed over it. Those are all creatures of the surface of the earth. They don't go down into mines. So the things that the casual observer sees, you know, an eagle flying over looking at stuff would be a casual observer. The things he sees won't see the treasures that are hidden beneath the soil. 9. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams so that they do not trickle, and the thing that is hidden he brings out to light. California Gold Rush, they literally removed mountains, and they literally dammed up rivers. And what they did is they would dam up a river, and they would run flumes basically open pipes down hill and they would have these big nozzles you know like fire hose nozzles big things and they would play them against the side of the hills and would wash it away 
and then they would sluice the gold as they washed it out. Whole mountains and valleys were destroyed during the gold rush. So he's talking about that kind of thing. And the idea is when a man gets gold fever and he finds out there's gold, he will move mountains to get it. Verse 12. So now we get to the subject. We have all of this hard work, searching, going out of your way, going to exotic places, moving mountains, all that kind of stuff for worldly wealth. 12. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? So the place of understanding is here different from all of those places where men have been searching for riches. Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me. The sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral, of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. As I say, he's gone through this entire riff about how hard people are willing to work for physical wealth. And what he's saying is all of that wealth cannot buy wisdom because wisdom is not hidden there and wisdom is from someplace else. It is not found in the land of the living. Verse 17. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Remember we had the birds of the air flying over the terrain and they were unable to see the hidden treasures under the soil? And he's saying wisdom is the same way. It's concealed from the casual observer who is just looking at the surface of the world. So it is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. Now we've got Abaddon back again. Remember the angel of the bottomless pit. And what he's saying is, it isn't down here either. God understands the way of it. And he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. It, in this case, being wisdom. And it says in another place, by wisdom God created the earth. So the idea that poetically wisdom becomes, if you will, the thing that God uses to create everything that is that we know. Verse 28, And he said to man, he, God, said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. And this is all out of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, all that kind of, this is all Eastern wisdom. The same kind of stuff that you get in Proverbs, you get in Ecclesiastes, you get in here in Job. And, oh, by the way, it is consistent. So 
everything we've read here is perfectly consistent with what you would read in Proverbs or read in Ecclesiastes. We had this entire riff on the difficulty of uncovering earthly treasure. Heavenly treasure or wisdom is every bit as difficult to uncover. And it requires just as much effort, but it requires that effort in a different realm. Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you. Let us